And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I actually have one of my intellectual heroes, I would say. My, many people know my, my, my dad taught at the University of South Carolina. My mom taught at Bennett. And we always had this insatiable desire to learn as much as possible. And one of our heroes is none other than Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bakari. It's so great to be on. I've been looking forward to this. You know, my show is unique in the way that we start each one of our episodes because we have our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you've had an, a story career in academia and in advocacy. Talk about the formative experience in your childhood to, that led you to want to pursue a career in law and civil rights. What were those experiences? And walk us through the arc of your career from your first role after clerking to the work, the amazing work that you're doing now. Hmm. Well, my story, I guess, about uh, becoming a lawyer starts with the fact that in my household, along with the picture of John F. Kennedy and Jesus, there was Thurgood <laughs> Marshall, right? Those were the, sort of the, the, the triplets that, that represented um, values that my family held dear. Um, I came from a family that was called, you know, uh, the race men and women of the 20th century. My mom uh, integrated the swimming pool in her neighborhood when she was three and went on to do the same to the soda count, the soda fountain, the movie theater, so on and so forth. Canton, Ohio was uh, on the way of the great migration. A lot of black folk came up. Uh, for the industrial jobs in the early uh, 20th century. And my grandfather uh, set up shop there as, as a local physician. Um, and my, my grandfather on the other side uh, was a minister. His church was used for labor organizing. Um, so the, the family came together with a very strong sense of using whatever resources and opportunities that they were given to you know, advance the the whole of us as opposed to um, individual uh, accomplishment, you know, for just individual sake. So um, there was always in the in the in the household a conversation about the we. The we was seen as being a broader uh, uh, notion of of sort of mutuality and responsibility. And of course, I grew up you know, watching the civil rights movement on television, watching the Panthers uh, mm -hmm. on television, watching the student sit-ins, and then later the demand for Africana studies uh, unfold on college campuses. So by the time I arrived at Cornell, I was probably uh, a freshman when seniors who were freshmen doing the big, you know, takeover of the student union that led to the student <laughs> Uh, uh, Africana studies. I was basically um, swimming in those waters, shall we mm -hmm. say. So by the time I got to Harvard Law School, um, I'd already been intellectually shaped as a student of not just Black history, but Black political history, diasporic history, understanding that our condition was not simply um, the product of prejudice per se, uh, nor was it a, pro a project of uh, ignorance, but um, I had a far greater sense of the institutional ways that anti-Black racism had played out so that when I got to law school, I wanted to understand law's role in that which I had studied. Um, 
I went to study with Derek Bell and as they said, uh, Derek Bell had left the building. <laughs> he was no longer there. So my first uh, year was just spent with a bunch of other students who were just like me. They were coming to Harvard Law School to study with the great Derek Bell and were um, shocked and appalled that the university had no plans to teach his courses or to replace him in any way. And our protest actually became the beginning of critical race theory because the reaction that they gave, the explanation about why these courses weren't essential was the explanation that basically said the racial status quo is the status quo. Um, and there's not much you know, that we need to prioritize in terms of dismantling that. So sometimes when you protest something, you get the explicit articulation for why the thing is the way it is and mm -hmm. then setting your target on addressing and dismantling that uh becomes the project and that frankly you know is the beginning of pretty much everything that i've thought about or read about since that is being critical about the structures of uh racism that have just become so much a part of our social order that frequently it isn't challenged. We're all about trying to challenge those ideas. Because I wanna, I wanna tie in what's going on in the world around us. So I'm gonna interject some of that, but because I want to spend some time helping my listeners understand this, what exactly does critical race theory mean? And what is it and why is it a necessary lens and framework for us to understand the structural racism you talk about? Yeah, well, so so let me let me give the 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 elevator uh, version, but then the more important one is um, what is the attack on critical race theory and why? What's important to understand about? So let that? me just tell you, I don't talk, to, especially on TV. I don't talk to folk about critical race theory because nine times out of ten, the people you debating about critical race theory don't know what the hell it means. They don't. They don't. <laughs> but one of, one of the things that I, I'm hoping listeners come away with is a sense that the way they narrate their lives, the things that they pass on to their children, the mother wit that was passed on from generations, that effectively is critical race theory. And that effectively is what those who are attacking critical race theory are trying to get us to unname, you know, literally to make racism unspeakable. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of how to make that bridge for most listeners, um, I think, number one, it's important to understand that critical race theory isn't so much of a thing. Um, it is a prism. It is a lens. It's a way of looking at the social order that we all um, live in and understanding the dynamics that produce the fact that, for example, you know, black wealth still is about a quarter of what white wealth is. Black health uh, lifespan is still uh, uh, far shorter than white lifespan. Uh, it is all of the ways that um, socially disparate outcomes across race are continuously being produced. It's not that we're just looking uh, at the after effects of a long ago system that eventually will die out. But these are ongoing dynamics that produce, 
you know, um, houses that black people live in being worth less than houses that white people live in. Um, it is about the way that policing black folks always has and continues to look different than policing white folks. So or Jackson, Mississippi doesn't have water. Water or Flint, Michigan has lead in the water. I mean, we could go, you know, across every social determinant that spells out different life circumstances for black folk and find in it not only policies that have produced it, but explicitly uh, racist justifications for those policies in the past that have never been fully dismantled. So our, our job as critical race theorists is to be critical of the lie um, that the world we inhabit is the world, the only world that could happen, or that we are responsible for the inequalities that we suffer, and that the basic uh, way to deal with racism of the past is to be colorblind. Um, the arch enemy, basically, of critical race theory is the belief that the solution to racial problems is not to talk about them, or the solution to racial disparity is to close our eyes and you know, click our heels and and wish our way into a world that we're never going to inhabit. We will always be a post-race, racial, post-slave, post-genocidal society. There's no way of not being that. But what that means and what the continuous demand to try to make ourselves a real multiracial democracy that is a real and ongoing project. So critical race theory is a tool. Um, a dynamic, a way of engaging the current racial realities in order to transform and change them. Now, that's my elevator pitch. Probably we had to go to the 50th floor for that. It's <laughs> a long elevator ride. This is a long ride. But I can cut to the chase and basically say that the attack on critical race theory um, is a backlash from the 2020 mobilization that saw people in all 50 states uh, come out in outrage against the murder of George Floyd. It is a, um, uh, a, a it is the reality that people were talking about racism in very um, complex and important ways, and that uh, I think created um, an opportunity for those who were deeply disturbed by um, the degree to which racial justice had become a majoritarian value. Uh, could push back on. And critical race theory became a very convenient container to put in the entire racial justice apparatus. So everything is in there. 1619 is in there. Structural racism is in there. Implicit bias is in there. Everything that says we have a racial problem and it's not Black people <laughs> right, is part of critical race theory. So when you hear it being attacked, know it's attacking Whenever you give your talk to your kid, that will be framed as critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Or when you see the police officers, officers in the rearview mirror and you put your hands on the steering wheel, anything that reflects the race reality that we live in and the effort to teach people about it, to prevent these things from happening, that is being framed as critical race theory. Those are the books that are being banned. That's the teaching that the other side doesn't want us to have access to. So one policy question before we go into the current kind of political landscape today, I'm someone who always says that rising tides in the United States of America do not lift all boats. 
No, they you don't. You cannot have rate, and this is what drives me crazy about the Democratic Party, but you cannot have race neutral policies that change race specific issues. Is that, is my thinking flawed or am I, am I head on? Okay, that so that's, the ele- that's the escalator uh, version, right? You got to, you know, you got to where you're going in, in one ride up. Absolutely. You cannot solve race specific problems with colorblind remedies. And and mm-hmm. that is, you know, essentially the uh, conclusion that the post-civil rights generation of us who went to these law schools, you know, um, in, in the 70s and 80s, you know, uncovered that the structures of race and racism um, require explicit race-targeted uh, analyses and and interventions. I often uh, draw this this um, analogy, which is to say that um, you know we have created institutions with a lot of toxic materials. Um, let's think about our physical plant. We created institutions with asbestos, and we now realize that that wasn't a good idea, and it really mm-hmm. makes people sick. It would be crazy for us to say that the solution to um, asbestos-related diseases was to never say the word asbestos, to be asbestos blind um, in evaluating the safety of our institutions or to penalize the study of asbestos and to demonize the experts who can tell you where this asbestos is, what we need to do to remove it, and how we can make us all safe from the toxicity. But that's exactly what we do when we embrace the idea of colorblindness. We've got race packed into our institutions and effectively critics of critical race theory and the entire racial justice apparatus are basically saying, well, we have to be race blind. It is the equivalent of saying, we're gonna penalize talking about asbestos when we're trying to remove this toxin from our institutions. It doesn't make sense with respect to asbestos and it makes no more sense with respect to race and racism. So you have this convergence and you saw critical race theory be the central point of the uh, Virginia gubernatorial race. And part of it was because Terry McAuliffe wasn't armed intellectually to push back and be able to frame what it really is. That's part of it. Um, and now you have anti-intellectuals, um, whether or not it's Kanye West or Herschel Walker being lifted up and giving a platform. What are you seeing in the work that you do, particularly right now, how this landscape is playing out when you look at critical race theory, the, the important role that is playing, the misunderstanding, the anti-intellectualism. Give me your 50,000 foot view and <laughs> where we are politically based upon your illustrious academic background. What do you see, especially from the African-American policy forum, the work you do today? Tell me yeah. what you see on the playing field. Well, you know, obviously we are in a a period of of significant retrenchment. We are watching the unfolding of a very old page from a very old playbook. There's been a long history of suppressing um, knowledge, um, suppressing literacy in order to sustain an unjust, racially inequitable uh, status quo. Um, I think most listeners will probably not be surprised to 
to know that, you know, there was a time that Black people were prevented from even being able to read. Um, most folks will not be surprised to know that education not only was denied um, to Black folk, uh, but agitation for uh, abolition, for full citizenship at periods of time in this history were actually uh, subject to legal constraint. So it's not new that attacks on ideas around uh, liberty, around uh, racial justice have been subject to censorship, have been framed as un-American, have been framed as being divisive. There has never been a time in this country where knowledge, the letters, um, and 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 culture that leaned to greater inclusion and greater justice has not been framed as divisive. And that stretches all the way back to Frederick Douglass, to Martin Luther King, uh, to critical race theory today. So number one, this is not new. <laughs> um, what should be, I think, more concerning to us, which is clearly more concerning to me, is why an old page could be so effectively replayed. Mm -hmm. Why is it that... Um, we can point out how the Daughters of the Confederacy really shaped how uh, the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction has been misunderstood. Why is it that knowing that doesn't make us all the more prepared to deal with the Moms of Liberty who are trying to reshape how the Civil Rights Movement is understood and how race and racism should be taught? And I would say, for me, the problem is you know, less that 20% that is, you know, died in the wool racist in this country and another 20% that can be persuaded to go along with them. What really worries me um, are our allies who are utterly unprepared, as you point out it in Virginia, um, to actually engage these, these questions, to actually have something to say about structural racism, to actually be able to draw the connections between the attack on racial justice and the attack on our democracy. I've been appalled about how little conversation there's been about how the attack on January 6th cannot be understood outside of um, the attack on the participation of political groups that are seen as not really American or not really having the right to participate. All of the, the conspiracies are conspiracies that are about Philadelphia um, and Atlanta, you know, where Black people gave the White House to, to Biden. There cannot be a serious effort to save our democracy without understanding the role that racism has played historically in defeating it and without understanding that you can't save it without saving racial justice. And that frankly is what too many pundits, people elected by us have not really been able to grapple with and speak to. Tell me about the nexus that we see a lot of, whether or not it's January 6th or Charlottesville between anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness. Those two things, I've always wanted to ask that question of somebody because they seem to almost be two sides of the same coin or rooted from the same ignorance, but they always show their head at the same time. And we're seeing that right now with, with um, Kanye West, especially. 
Yeah, we are. We are seeing it now with Kanye West. We are seeing it um, in in terms of the narrative that the uh, mobilization of black folk and other people of color could not be possible without Jewish intervention, Jewish money and Jewish encouragement. Um, I worry that the anti-Semitism that is embedded in that is more legible to people than the anti-Black racism that is embedded in that. Um, and I think we we can actually see that in, you know, the fact that Conray, Kanye had a big windup before he really started coming out with the anti-Semitic stuff. And there could have been a far more robust response to the racist stuff that he was saying, um, because on the heels of that racist stuff is, OK, so who's behind it? Because obviously black people can't really, you know, mobilize themselves. Obviously, the resources have to come from some cabal, and we know where that cabal is. So I see this as a classic intersection of anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism, but it isn't as robust as it could be because we haven't really talked about these two um, isms, how they function together um, historically and how they're functioning together right now. I know we don't have a lot of time. I could stay with you for an hour. I told you we'd keep you for 30 minutes. I know you're changing the world, but talk about what the African-American policy form is and about this 23 city books unbanned tour you've got going on. What is it and why are you doing it? Well, the African-American policy forum is a, is a think tank social justice uh, organization that um, I founded with Luke Harris in the aftermath of the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill debacle. Um, we sat on the steps across from the Capitol and realized that number one, our futures were being changed by that very moment. And that number two, um, the failure of the uh, civil rights community, and in particular, the African-American community to understand the importance of Black women's history and Black women's um, long struggle uh, against sexual abuse was one of the factors that led to an overwhelming uh, uh, degree of support that Clarence Thomas won from the African-American community after Anita Hill came forward. And for the most part, it was based on uh, historical erasures. People said, well, sexual harassment isn't something that Black women have experienced. Uh, sexual harassment isn't uh, something that is core to the struggles of African-Americans and nothing could be further from the truth. So we set out to create a racial justice organization that put gender um, and patriarchy and heterosexism at the center and make sure that we would be in a better position the next time uh, a clear and present danger was presented and we weren't able to answer the call because we had marginalized uh, gender justice. Um, and so we've been around for a couple of decades and what we've been doing recently is drawing awareness to the censorship that is happening. Um, a lot of people might not know 
that when uh, these school boards get elected, often when we sit out elections like the midterms, um, there's a rabbit group of extremists who take over and in their zealotry against critical race theory and um, and so-called uh, brainwashing, they've gone after some of the classic books uh, in the canon. Uh, Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye, mm -hmm. Alice Walker, uh, The Color Purple, and then new classics, All Boys Aren't Blue, uh, Between the World and Me, uh, and even Zora Neale Hurston. I mean, it's shocking the number of books that have been banned as divisive. So we thought that rather than trying to have this battle at a higher level uh, in, in the media, we just needed to go to the people um, in the same vein of the Freedom Riders who said, you don't get to tell us where to sit and where to, <laughs> where to eat. We said, you don't get to tell us what to read, what to teach and what to learn. So we gathered 6,000 books and went to 17 states, 24 cities, giving away the knowledge that the extremists on the right don't want us to have and saying that if you don't know that there's an election coming up, that's a problem. If you don't know why you need to participate in this election, here it is. If this is concerning to you, um, if the fact that the same people who are trying to gerrymander us out of power, trying to gerrymander mm -hmm. us out of history, if they're on the ballot, then you need to have something to say about it. And so that's what we've been doing. Um, just got back the day before yesterday. <laughs> I'm here in Georgia right now trying to turn out black male voters. What's the elevator pitch? What are we, your organization, what are you seeing on the ground right now to get us mobilized? What, what can Dr. Crenshaw tell us to do more of how we get people who are not voting Republican, but ain't voting for nobody. How do we get them based upon what you're seeing and the issues we care about to get them from? Because I've always told folk that we we don't really analyze politics well because we look at we look at binary choices and we say people will either vote Democrat or Republican. And I say no, people either vote Democrat, Republican, or the couch. And sometimes the couch has a successful showing. How can we eliminate that? Well, that's one of the reasons why I have been trying to raise, uh, actually just tell people what the right wing is actually saying about us and about anti-racism. I have been trying to um, alert people to the fact that the things that they take for granted are actually being eroded right in front of our eyes. And that this election, although it's not a presidential election, is probably among the most important elections of our lifetime because democracy itself is on the ballot. So yeah, there are lots of ways that we have not been delighted with the choices that we've made. We've been able to put people into office, but we haven't been able to control the agenda to the extent that our political participation should. should. Uh, and that's a real and an abiding problem for sure. And at the same time, we're looking at a moment where there are folks who are all about trying to make sure that we don't ever vote at all. And if we are not part of the equation, if we don't get to um, have at least the ability to say, no, you don't get to take away our, uh, our ability to teach our children that the life that they've inherited is not from our lack of intelligence and hard work 
um, and, and hopes and dreams, but because of a structure that has been set up that continues to rob us of, of the rights that we have, they don't get to tell us that we don't have the ability to celebrate the fact that we have survived. They don't get to tell us that their children are more harmed by hearing our story than we are by having experienced it. They don't get to tell us what our story is. So if at minimum um, people recognize that when these folks uh, who want to take away our democracy have the tools to do so, they will do so because they've done so in the past. When people are aware of that and see in clear detail what it is that this, this, this cabal is trying to do, I think it allows us to galvanize people away from the sitting on the couch. Um, if nothing else, if you want to live to fight another day, this is an election that we have to come out for. Uh, otherwise, you know, we've been disenfranchised, not just because people are trying to take away our vote. They're trying to take away our desire and our reason to vote. And we cannot let them be successful in that. I you know, my closing for most people is I don't want to be responsible for passing on to the next generation the baton in a worse field position than I received it in. And I think that's really what we're looking at, you know, these days. Um, we've got to run a lot faster to put our children in a better position um, than we received it in. And right now, um, we're we're not really up upholding our generation's lap, and that I just can't sit with. Well, Kimberly Crenshaw, thank you for everything you have done. Thank you for everything you are doing, but even more importantly, thank you for everything that you will do. We need all hands on deck. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.